This is Dark Blue. My name is Jeff Rickley. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the challenges that people face when they choose a life in the arts. On each episode, we'll talk to a different artist about a range of topics, from addiction to depression, to what it feels like to lose a collaborator to suicide. And we'll try to find the tools that they've used to lead healthy lives in a field that has few guidelines. On this episode, I talked to Patrick Stickles of the band Titus Andronicus, one of the most interesting and inflammatory bands of the past decade. With their second record, The Monitor, the band became instant critical darlings and gained a wide audience. But it was their fourth album, The Most Lamentable Tragedy, which caught my attention for its unflinching portrayal of manic depression. Patrick and I discuss creating art under the influence of mania, as well as planning for the inevitable crash that comes after. We talk about using our band's music to explore feelings that are otherwise marginalized or ignored. We discuss the therapeutic value of owning pets, our tenuous relationships with our own bodies, and then I accidentally erased it all. My God, Patrick, I'm so sorry. This is so embarrassing. There it's going. It's going. All right. Everything's fine. So it's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's good to meet you, Patrick. Come to my home. It's okay. We're just that's, we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna put an H on our backs and handle this one. It's I was fine. very it's uh, fine. Very it's easily totally embarrassed, fine. and that one got me. It's good. okay. It's all right. You're a star, dude. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Everything's fine. Maybe we weren't supposed to talk about. What you have to understand is, this is one of my great fears. To be in the room with somebody that's an ostensible peer, but that I admire greatly, and I'm often quite intimidated by, and to have this kind of a mistake happen, is terrifying for me. And yet, Patrick handled the whole thing with grace. He made me feel better about what I had just done. And through all of it, it brought us closer together. This, for me, is a great reminder that we don't need to be afraid so much of the time. Here is what really amounts to the second Titus Andronicus interview. The song, um, My Body and Me, the thing that I really like about about the way that you talk about it is like the, the separateness. Of the self and the body. Oh, definitely. There's a real distinction there between our, you know, our physical selves and our cerebral selves. You know, between our interior world and our manifestation in the exterior world. Yeah. Which speaks to what we were talking about before. Maybe we'll talk about it later, about the uh, distinction between our emotions and our cognitions. Right. In that particular song, that which we call me would probably be more so my cognitions. Right. And my body would be uh, my emotions. But it's not purely a metaphor. I definitely feel the foreignness of my body. What is this thing? Sometimes I, 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 I think about my body as if it's a pet that I need to remember to take care of. Um, but I think that's also a sort of condescending view, <laughs> view of it, too. 
Um, no, it's true, but it's got a it's got a lot of demands. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh god, I gotta feed this thing again. <laughs> yeah, it is like I gotta feed this thing again. Fuck. Um, I I had this uh, experience where I and and some of the people that listen to this will already know this, but I went to Mexico and took this drug called ibogaine. Um, I haven't heard of that one. It's an African root bark that. Uh, makes like a 48-hour sustained uh, hallucinatory state. Um, <clears throat> it was used by tribes as a coming-of-age ritual, but it, it resets a lot of the body's circuitry for heroin addiction, so you don't have your physical dependency on it anymore. Oh. Um, kind but, of like a detoxing yeah, sort of a vision quest. And the vision quest is very dark. It's, uh, you know, Did you meet call Satan? It the death trip and I definitely... There's a part where you're supposed to ask it to show you your true self, and... Uh, Definitely, oh it definitely showed me a picture of Hitler first. That's definitely the last thing I would ever want to do to myself. And then it showed me a, the Morning Star, which I was like, I think that's Satan. So I was like, so I'm either Hitler or Satan. This is pretty tight. Um, it was, yeah, it was pretty terrifying. Like people call it, uh, you know, a thousand hours of therapy, or um, you know, there's there's a couple of nicknames for it, but you have to do it in a hospital on an IV with like heart monitors because it kills a lot of people. Oh, really? So you weren't in like the desert? No, no, no. It was uh, Tawana. Um, but one of the things that I was very um, that I became very like I, I I was shown that it's not just you in your body. Like it's like there's different parts of your brain, and they want different things. And there's like the lizard brain, you know, that's like trying to keep you alive and do certain things. And right, our survival instincts. Yeah, and very and, powerful. And they, you kind of like think of them all as like, oh, the subconscious is like some part of me. It's like almost like another person. That right. Is what? Because or perhaps it's the way that we access some kind of uh, universal energy field, right? Or something, or some kind of ancient wisdom that is like, you know. Uh, that pushes the flowers up from the ground or something, right? I think there's there's that too. Um, I think there's like just just so many parts of us that are in this body, and uh, and it really changed the way I thought about my body. And I started to sort of not have sympathy for my body, but I started to think like I got to be nicer to you because I think of you as the thing that fucks with me all the time. You know, I think of my yeah. body as like the antagonistic one, but I sort of saw this other side, which is that like I am my body's antagonist too, right. and I'm constantly doing totally unhealthy, terrible shit to it to like appease my anxiety or my you know whatever I have going on at the time. And I started doing this thing when I got back that felt so corny, but it was that like I would look in the mirror and talk to like my body and be like, "Hey, I'm sorry I did this thing before, but I'm going to try to get you through this." You know, you got me through a lot of stupid shit. Like, I've gotten myself mugged and stabbed and, like, done all this dumb stuff and gotten you in trouble, and you didn't die. Right, you hung in there. <laughs> you kept going, and I, like, I appreciate that, you know, and i got to try to do a little better. And the weird thing is once I started kind of doing that and, like, actively being like, maybe I should be nicer to you, like, we should we should at least try to be friends even though, you, you know, I don't, like, I'm not super psyched on you all the time. It's really helped. And my self-image has sort of, like, changed a little. Like, nothing about my body has changed, but I've stopped being like, ugh, this thing. Uh, taking ownership of it. Yeah. 
That sounds like a positive step. <laughs> it felt like a positive step, for sure. Well, you know, even though we were just saying how often, you know, the mind and the body are distinct, you know, they do work upon each other in mysterious ways. Mm. A lot of the times, you know, when I'm having one of my bad days and feeling really cranky, I'm like, this is because of X, Y, Z, external inciting incidents, like we were saying. Uh-huh. And then sometimes when I'm getting really cranky, then I will suddenly realize, like, oh... I also haven't eaten anything today, right. and it's like 8 o'clock, so maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. Because a lot of times when we have these, like, mystery feelings in our bodies, we will, you know, uh, sometimes try to explain them with some kind of cerebral thing, and it's not always that. Right. And conversely, like, sometimes when you're physically, like, feeling like shit, that may be your body's manifestation of things that are happening in your mind. So they are interrelated, but it doesn't always doesn't always feel that way. So that was another one of those moments that I was trying to validate through song. And I also noticed that, like, you know, body dysmorphia doesn't have many, like, knuckle-headed blues rock anthems for it. Right. So I thought that I would, you know, uh, dash one of those off real quick. <laughs> you know, just for, uh, add it to the can. For the listeners out there, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they need it. Wish I had had a song like that when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, knuckleheaded. I mean, I did definitely notice Maybe I should that say boneheaded. I did sort of, yeah, yeah, right. I did sort of notice that there's a kind of like, uh, in contrast to some of the more like, uh, I don't know, Stiff Records influenced or kind of like spry songs that that one had a little bit of like a lurch to it, you know, like a little bit of a... You know, there's that harmonic that comes in the riff every oh, time. Wow. It's like, thank you for noticing. You could have just left that harmonic out and had it be more bluesy, but it like gave it like a little bit of that metal. Right. Well, I had to, had to do something. <laughs> Put the horns up a little. I had to do something. <laughs> no, I just think there's you know still plenty of miles left to ride on those old blues rock tropes. Yeah. They're not very trendy to use anymore, but well, I, I wonder if was... they're good enough for the Rolling Stones. Who do I think I am? <laughs> Joe Walsh still uses it. I wondered if it was sort of a, a nod to the body's sort of, uh, l- like, lumbering kind of, like, physicality is, like, you know, so you'd give it a little bit of a, like... Right. Dragging around a bag yeah, of bones. Exactly. A little bit of that in the Not track, always you know? easy work. Well, you know, I've just, you know, the whole reason for that song is, you know, just I'm striving to uh, be as open and transparent as I can about my struggles and just, you know... Uh, Offer my listeners the validation and the representation that I've so often been the beneficiary of thanks to the work of the artist that came before me. You know what I mean? I appreciated that answer. It was both sincere and sort of like canned because... Oh, we are on the radio. Because we, we? Yeah, we're, what is we're on the radio here. Um, because I think that's so representative of so many things that you do with Titus Andronicus. Um and I think that that makes it a lot easier for people to swallow some of it. You know, I've always been kind of a... I just just beat my head against the wall of sincerity. And that's, you know, there's a certain amount of people that just they can't do it. It's too... Uh, it's too unself-aware. You know, I think that there are times when I've met people and they've said, like, I can't believe how self-aware you are in person and your music's so serious. And, uh, and I've always thought, like, oh, yeah, I just don't know how to do humor in music. It's just... I can't even, like, arch an eyebrow. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not in me, in my 
work with Thursday at least. You know what I mean? Um, ours, ours is sincerity and self-awareness mutually exclusive? Do we have to be taking the piss out of ourselves if we are to be self-aware? That's a good question, but I think most people would say yes. <laughs> because why? Because that makes it less of a bitter pill to swallow. Right. I, I That's the thing that I... I that's one of the... I mean, there's a lot of things that I like about your band, but I really appreciate there's sort of this mix of high and low, uh, highbrow, lowbrow... Yes. You know, serious, not so serious. Right, well, um, that's why we named the band Titus Andronicus, you know, because it occupies a uh, certain nexus uh, between uh, cerebral and visceral impulses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it is a play by Shakespeare, for those that don't know. That was his uh, first tragedy that he wrote sometime, whenever the hell he yeah. lived, the 16th century or something? The 16th century? Right. <laughs> so, you know, because he's, you know... Uh, pretty much the king of the canon, right? right. You would figure that uh, all his work is extremely uh, sophisticated and it belongs under glass, but the play Titus Andronicus is quite like a uh, bit of like a grindhouse thing. Yeah, right, that you would know, be his yellow film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's lots of uh, bloodshed and like a murder every 90 lines or something. I saw a stat once. But, um, oh, that's great. <laughs> right. And in fact, it's so over the top that like some scholars now say that he was actually trying to like parody oh, the tropes that? of, you know, classical uh, tragedy and, and like the mode of like a Medea or Oedipus or something like that. Okay. Like exaggerating it to the point of ridiculousness in the way of like a scary movie or something like that. You sure. remember that one with uh, the Wayans Brothers? Classic now. Right. But, you know, it took them like 500 years to figure that out. So hopefully, you know, the scholars will invest just as much time in trying to figure out my work. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Good luck to them, I <laughs> I remember reading some early review of a Titus record that was like, and they picked a minor Shakespeare work for their title. And I thought, like, yeah, that's, isn't that right. kind of the point, though? Like, yeah. Well, I never, thought we were, I never thought that we were going to be the Hamlet of rock bands. <laughs> no, I don't sound Although now I'm kind of like, wow. Man, we'd now be I'm lucky like, enough to get the uh, <laughs> two gentlemen of Verona or something like that. <laughs> Good God. Why did we start talking about that? Well, oh, occupying a certain nexus between cerebral and visceral impulses? Yeah. Well, that's what it is, like, you know, because, like, I, I you know, try to speak about serious things and issues uh, that are important to me in my own life or, you know, very occasionally important issues in the wider world. But at the same time, like, it is rock and roll, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's, like, a Louie Louie element to it. There is, you know, the whole uh, kind of pagan ritual element, the Bacchanal, yeah. you know what I Especially mean? Especially live, you guys have that Definitely, down, yeah. big time. <laughs> So, you know, and a um, big part of the reason for that is, like, you know, uh, even though I will often speak about, you know, things that are negative, I think that the um, externalizing them and bringing them into a public forum where they can, you know, be validated and everybody can say, like, this is, you know, this is maybe not fun, but it is normal, uh, yeah. even if it's not necessarily something worth celebrating you know what is worth celebrating is the unburdening of oneself and the putting out of these ideas and saying that this is valid and this should be represented and you know uh, 
try to create as inclusive environment as possible, you know, put up as big of a tent as I can so that people can come in and say, you know, this music says something about the way that I feel. And uh, hopefully they can, you know, draw strength and fortitude from, you know, being in a room of people that feel some kind of similar way and share their strength with these people and, you know, turn it into a... uh, a positive thing, even if the um, the themes being discussed are not always the funnest thing in the world. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that, that you know you talked about the positive, you know, whether it's a positive thing or not. And one of the things that we have discussed before was the sort of celebratory nature of songs like "Dying Doubt" that almost like represent maybe the heightened state of mania, you know. And yes, and yes. I found that really helpful for me to understand what something like that might sound like or feel even just an an inkling of what something like that might feel like that it's you know that there is this sort of like a thrill uh, thrill to it yeah and and maybe a, a feeling of power and competence invincibility invincibility oh yes well you know i should i should uh, make the disclaimer that you know um you know with that particular song and that particular album the most lamentable tragedy still available from the good people at Merge Records. My yeah. favorite Titus record. Well, thanks. Mine too. But don't forget to look out for that new one. Yeah, that's the new right. one. The new one's fine. The new one's amazing. Oh, actually, thank you, thank you. Um, what am I saying about it? Oh yeah, just you know, with the purpose of that album was to you know represent the wide spectrum of moments that you know occur across the. The, the uh, emotional cycles of a bipolar person such as myself, you know, and um, that particular song, Dime Out, was intended to be, you know, uh, if not necessarily like a celebration, at least a validation of a certain moment that occurs across that cycle, which is real, you know. I think a lot of people, uh, sometimes, you know, they see somebody up on stage perhaps looking quite heroic and strong and they say, you know, uh, or on a record or on the radio or whatever. Um, and they will say that, okay, like the person speaking right now is giving me like their personal guide to life uh-huh. and saying like, do this, <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah. that only liking it when it's dimed out or only enjoying life when you're at the height of your mania is not only cool, but encouraged and a smart idea, which I don't necessarily believe that it is and if you listen to that whole record and follow the whole uh, journey mm-hmm. of its narrator yeah. you find out that um there's a hefty a hefty price to pay at the end of that you know which is something that i've uh, certainly learned in my life you know because uh, my manic episodes you know even though they were very destructive and they cost me a lot they were frequently joyous and exhilarating experiences you know, which is not to say that I'm wishing one for myself now, and I recognize uh, that they're dangerous and you know often you know always pretty much foolhardy things to pursue. Um, it's still a moment in time that is valid and uh, you know natural and deserves to be represented. Yeah, and I think that. I try to make it clear with my records and with the arc of these records that, you know, there's all sorts of moments in life and, you know, you can, uh, you can validate these moments without necessarily 
putting them forth as some kind of ideal to that you should be striving for. You know what I'm saying? I do. I think it's interesting too, though. Um, does it make you feel sort of guilty when you have enjoyed manic episodes, or because oh, yeah, I definitely, does. especially like right when they're over, right? And you know, I. Uh, you know, a week ago I was having the time of my life and then, you know, I'm hitting the wall and now I'm like, oh my God, what kind of an idiot was I? All the things that I said and did right. can be very humiliating. And but, I think there's some value in a song like Dimed Out for people who have hit that wall and have felt that shame and, and guilt about enjoying something like that. And then it's like maybe... You can give them a break from themselves for a second to hear you going through it. I think there's a real value in that, too. I think it's like just knowing that you're not alone. Right. It can really help, you know what I mean? I think it sounds like a fucking terrible moment. Like, I know those feelings when I'm coming down and I'm like, oh, my God, people definitely knew. And I said this crazy thing to this person. And, like, I think I dropped a heroin into the tip jar at the Criff Dog. And, like, now I don't know what I'm going to do because now I'm never going to be welcome back in Crew Talk. <laughs> you know, because I made a fool. And then you think, like, oh, man, I'm just, yeah. So right. I can imagine. Yeah, and then you're, you know, compounding the uh, terrible feelings that you already feel right. with, you know, invalidating the feelings in the past. Yeah. And, you know, validation is, you know, one of the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves. Yeah. So that's, you know. The main thing that I strive to do uh, in terms of serving my audience, <clears throat> but it's not purely selfless, you know, because like, you know, with the audience, I create kind of a, you know, mutual validation loop whereby, you know, they witness me uh, on stage, you know, expressing and validating myself and externalizing my inner world. And I can, you know, see the benefit that this has on them and you know they're singing back to me often or you know giving me positive energy and you know in seeing their validation you know I see myself reflected in them and therefore I am also validated so great yeah. great blessing for a guy like me it's, not everybody in my position has a support system like that so yeah I'm definitely a lucky guy I think it definitely did you want a cough drop I'm sucking no, on these things like no, it's no, my no, job no okay thanks um I think that's a part of what gives your live shows almost the feeling of like an old revival or something. There's just like a a sort of like spiritual. Yeah, definitely trying to catch the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite it's quite a thing, um, and I definitely recognize that that thing of like if you throw everything in and you like empty yourself, but you also fill yourself. It's just super. There's so many times when it's like the show starts and at one point I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great, and then it's done. You know, it's like I can't remember anything that happened in between almost. It's just right. such a... Walking on a cloud. Yeah, you're in this visceral moment, and then it's like... I don't know, there's that great uh, Iggy Pop quote at the beginning of the Mogwai record where he's, like, talking about, like, you know, there's no pleasure or pain, and, and there's, you know, there's no time, and... He loses himself completely and in, into this like oneness. It's like a lot. It's a lot like what people search for in meditation and mm -hmm. you know these kind of Eastern practices and things like that. And certainly, what I've seen uh, <laughs> under certain extreme hallucinogenic circumstances of like DMT or something like that. But there's nothing purer than that communion with music and with other people. Is there's something about it that's just yeah. different, you know? And I've had it 
from way before I was in a band, you know, if you'd see the right band, I remember seeing, like, Fugazi for the first time, or seeing even Nine Inch Nails, or, like, you know... Uh, right. Though you are not wearing a Fugazi shirt that's right, right now. yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah, it sure would be nice to take a, uh, take a little bit of time off from the brain doing its work, so-called. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's sort of the beauty, is, I mean, it just, it feels like it goes away for a moment sometimes, and, uh, and there's like some purity that, in that connection, you know, that lets go of, I don't know if it's the ego or what it is that it lets go of exactly, but... Breaking the spell of uh, individuation, perhaps. Yeah. When you could be part of something uh, larger than yourself, maybe. Yeah, lifting the veil of consciousness, they say, in the Tibetan practices. This all makes it sound... Very fancy. Yeah, it does, but really, like, but losing only, yourself only, in a moment of rock, rock and roll. Yeah, this is a pretty good feeling. I like it. We're going to take a break now and have a word from the people who make Dark Blue possible. Dark Blue is part of the Osiris family. Osiris connects people like you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Visit OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss new interviews, events, and podcasts. So in that communion with the audience, did you have any formative experiences that taught you what it would be to lose yourself in, in a live show with another a band? You know, like, was there any time when you came to the show and you were, like, changed by it in a way that you were like, if I do it, I'm going to do it all the way? Oh. Well, I mean, there were, you know, hundreds of them back when I was a kid, of course. But, you know, if you're going to turn the screws on me, <laughs> maybe we pick just one. It would have to be Slater Kinney at the Roseland Ballroom. Oh, wow. In 2003. This is New York Roseland Ballroom, right? Yes, sir. Yes, it was. I what a day. If there were ever any magical day in my life, it were that. Because that was February. You might have to fact check this for me, but that was February 3rd, 2003, mm. which was just after um, the government decided that uh, they were going to invade Iraq. And so um, on that day, there were, you know, staged all these um, global protests against this decision. And one of the biggest ones was right here in New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, though I lived in New Jersey at that time, not far from where you grew up, Dumont, right? right? Uh, But me and all my friends um, went into the city to participate in that protest. And then we uh, went to the Slater-Kinney concert that evening and you know it was clear that uh most if not you know the vast majority if not all of the people at the concert had been at the protest that day and uh everyone was feeling uh quite uh quite strong and feeling good about you know their participation and maybe feeling that thrill of surrendering yourself to something bigger than yourself yeah and you know Slater Kinney spoke about this from the stage and like what can I say? Like, they just rocked. And I was, like, 17 years old, so I was, at like, the perfect age for it. Mm-hmm. And just, like, very, uh, very positive energy in the room. Not like some of these other punk concerts, you know, when they, like, turn into, like, some kind of fuck fest. People, like, pummeling each other and stuff. It wasn't, I don't remember it being quite like that at all. Might have jostled a cut, an elbow or two, but you know nothing, uh, nothing like the MMA stuff yeah. that you sometimes see at these big punk and punk adjacent shows, which drives me nuts, especially nowadays. You know, 
but uh, and, you know Slater Kenny like Unimpeachable Ethics the One Beat album that just come out oh yeah what a day and I guess like you said uh, you know even if I wouldn't have articulated it as such you know I walked away with you know quite a powerful model about the way that things could be given you know just the right circumstances I don't know if Titus Andronicus has put on quite as legendary a show as that but I guess you would have to uh, you'd have to ask the punters yeah the punters wouldn't be, wouldn't like be qualified to answer that myself <laughs> uh I think I've read enough first-person accounts of that from people that have been at your shows, and I've, I've certainly had great experiences with it. Do you feel at all like that you are on sort of a, I don't know, at my best, I feel like very lucky that I've been allowed to sort of contribute to the stream that I've drank from my whole life. You know, oh, like water is this, you know, music is this thing that I probably wouldn't be alive without and now I've been allowed to give a little something of myself to that and Right. You're linking the chain now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes right back to what we were saying about, you know, the break, breaking the spell of individuation and uh, killing your ego and giving yourself over to the larger thing. And uh, you know, like I was saying before, like that's a probably nowadays the biggest reason that I do what I do which is you know looking for a way to to pay back the debt of the artist that came before me and offered me the validation that I wasn't otherwise receiving in my you know suburban teenage life Mm -hmm. oh what a chain what a chain to be a Lincoln it is if it weren't you know if if I hadn't found music I'm not sure what I'd be doing with myself but uh podcasting perhaps yeah maybe Maybe about what though? If you're not talking about music, what are you talking about? True um, detective recap, maybe. Or... <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Okay, all right. Life would be fine without music. Never mind. Um, but I think, you know, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. To be honest, I'm you're doing you're doing lost. you're doing great, dude. Um, I'm just hanging out, you know. It's not a big deal. There's something that I. That, feel myself wanting to ask about but I'm not sure how what the formulation of it is we'll we'll find it yeah man. we can always just trim this little part out it's no big deal oh I trim these things like crazy um <clears throat> but then again maybe not trimming it out would give validation and strength to you know aspiring podcasters out there who could say I could never be like one of these articulate podcast guys they always know what to say or would be awkward conversationalists you know just doing it freelance on the street right, right. You know? <laughs> I can't talk to anybody what if I say um right and then you can hear us they'll think I'm such a saying idiot. um let's talk about how it's cool when your front teeth are a little bit separated oh uh, yeah I'm into that <laughs> yeah I think it's a cool look <laughs> like when you think about like all the people the great people that have rocked this look yeah well, I over grew up the with years Madonna, Madonna yeah, David Letterman yeah Michael Strahan icons of the gap yeah you know? yeah huge I love it <laughs> I wouldn't have my front teeth any other way thank god Benny? I never had to go to the orthodontist yeah do you know Benny from uh, Gaslight Anthem? He rocks a gigantic gap. Big Sounds one. like my kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he told me that it's a sign of intelligence, which when he said it seemed 
to very much undercut his point. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the what the teeth situation was for the person that made that one up. Yeah, right. Exactly. Wonder what they looked like. I, think I got a I got a good guess. Sort of an inkling. Slightly. I mean, you know, I was on the way here and I saw this a freshly painted ad on the subway. You know, somebody blacked it out completely and wrote over it that forty eight percent of cancer patients go bankrupt within the first two years of treatment. Ooh. And that wouldn't surprise me at all. Doesn't surprise me at all. It's against the law to get sick. Yeah, it really is. And I was just thinking about that with regards to mental health too. It's almost like everything is stacked to make sure that you don't that you're not gonna be okay no matter what you do. Sometimes it feels that way. There's society in a nutshell for you, huh? Yeah. Right. Yeah, the haves have been pretty stacked against the rest of us. Right. Whatever it takes to uh, keep the little fish on the plate. Yeah. Fucking assholes. You're absolutely right, though. Like, our system is not really designed for, you know, people who are suffering. Probably a big reason why people often don't want to bring such things up in polite conversation. Yeah. You know, I go back and forth. I think when I was younger, it was easy to say, like, our system specifically is completely screwed up, which it clearly is, right? But I'd say so. I've been trying to figure out if there is a system that that could be better, it seems like there must be. If there is, we haven't uh, we haven't road tested it yet. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. But it, it makes it sort of a, a complicated thing to get mad about because you know that there should be some better system that doesn't leave people to die constantly or to be in misery their whole lives. But. Maybe there's not. Maybe, like, a magic system like that is incompatible with the natural world. Or, you know, a lot of people say, like, any of these systems, <clears throat> capitalism, socialism, whatever, feudalism, something, they'd all be great if it weren't human beings that had to operate them. That's what it seems like sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and human nature is not... I remember somebody told me when I was much younger that world peace was totally possible. Had to make sure there's no, you know, humans that wanted to not have peace. Right. And it was like... Good luck with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we all choose to not be at peace. No, not all of us. People with power choose. But but it does seem like it's some deep part of human nature to seek conflict and suffering as much as seeking happiness and joy. Yes. Well, like we were saying before about, you know, the, uh, the parts of our, uh, our consciousness or our subconscious... That you know, act on us without our uh, our cognitive awareness of them. I sometimes think that people will often do these awful, unscrupulous things to get ahead and you know corrupt our system, which maybe would be perfect if not for their interference. Uh, when they don't really, you know, they don't necessarily have to. The way that like these billionaires seem to be hoarding all the money, or you know, there's one and a million examples. I think that you know. That maybe, you know, being afraid is a very natural state. Mm -hmm. You know, like back when we lived in the jungle or whatever, if you weren't kind of really afraid and on the edge of your seat or the edge of your log or whatever at all times, like you would, you would, uh, you would end up getting eaten. You know what I mean? I think about this sometimes when I observe my cats, you know, the, the slightest little noise, you know, like a car driving by or something, they'll be like, huh, what? And they don't really, like, need to do that. That car is really not any kind of threat to them. But that's, like, uh, that's what they're programmed to do. Like, that's, you know, the ancient wisdom that uh, 
helps them to survive. And I think that those forces are, you know, working within us humans as well. We like to pretend that we're, you know, so different from the animals, but I don't really think so. Yeah, and I think of... that, you know, some of these unscrupulous people are unaware or don't know what to do with their naturally occurring uh, fears and anxieties. So, and it's not like they can, you know, go out and like chase a wildebeest or something about it. Right. Um, so they're like, well, I guess I'll just, you know, hoard my money and like try to screw over the, the poor and the sick. And, you know, that'll like make me feel a little bit more secure. I feel like Fucking a lot assholes. of... Uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of postmodernism was about that. It was like, okay, we're modernized now, and we've got this. We figured out society. We've done all this stuff. Then how come there's all this like evolutionary garbage left over that like we can't stop being animals and we can't stop having like anxiety? There's no getting the beast out of you. Like, there, it's, it's there. Um, the I, lizard brain, you called it, right? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the amygdala, the lizard brain, the. the the animal, the, the instinct, which still, you know, can save us when right. a bus goes by and we're like, whoa. Right. That's... The lion inside, as Titus Andronicus once sang. Yes. I actually, I love that song. It has a very, uh, has a great ending, I think. It's a really fun, fun, uh, fun track. Thank you. That's a track for all my Leos out there. All right. I like that. Are you a Leo yourself? Yes, sir. All right. I just turned 40 on stage, Holy which mackerel. was a pretty crazy experience. Yeah. Oh, Felt yeah. good, though. I used to kind of dread it and think, like, well, you can't have anything honest to say for 40 on stage. I don't know why I thought that, but I certainly did. Maybe it was that I envisioned myself being a 40-year-old playing to all kids, and I thought, like, what's the line of communication here, you know? Right. But hopefully, you know, I'm sure that your audience has grown along with you. <laughs> yeah. And there are probably plenty of plenty of people in the uh, in the audience who are thrilled to see a 40 year old guy on stage still living it up yeah and then every so often I talk to a 25 year old that's in the audience and they're much smarter and more mature than I am and I think well maybe I didn't need to worry about any of that well you have been at it a long time that's something to really be proud of in my book yeah it's... that's my number one career aspiration right now keeping my job yeah it feels not getting voted out of office feels good now what record number is this for you? This will be number six. That was when Good it got. God. That was when it really good. It, it was really tough in there. I have to say six and seven. Not oh, easy no. records, but only I was because seven was going to be the lucky one. Only because of the way that I approached it, which was that I sort of felt a tenuous relationship with whether or not I had earned the right to be doing what I was doing. You know, I still oh, felt like a fraud, and I right. felt like an imposter. Me, yeah, this is all fake. I shouldn't be doing this. And if I keep making records, people are going to see that clearly. Now I've gotten to the point where 20 years in, I'm like, oh, well, I do what I do. Like, there's no imposter there. Like, I've been doing this more of my life than not doing it. So what can you do? But there was a time when I felt very tenuous about it. I felt like maybe I, I didn't belong. Maybe I wasn't good enough. And it's nice to have that anxiety kind of come to an end a little bit. Where I've just accepted that this is what I do. It doesn't matter who likes it. It's just who I am. And it's not about whether I'm good enough. Because if I keep doing it, then I'm good enough to do it. You know? Right. Um, yes. But I did find it to be like a sort of strange in-between time. Where there's like, you have like the fresh of the new. And like everybody suddenly dis discovers that you're like, you've got something going for you. And you like are like, wait, really? I do? You know, like people actually like some of this stuff. And, and like and like hear what I'm saying and, and, and agree or... or 
has something interesting to say back and that was very exciting and then it got scary for me and I don't know if you've ever had any of those kinds of cycles but I what feeling like I'm a fraud and that the next record is going to be the one to properly articulate all my flaws so that they'll be visible through all my most celebrated works yes and they're like, oh, actually, this guy sucked all along. That's it. That's the feeling that I hated so much at record six and seven. Yes. Know? Yes. Actually, yeah. I can't lie. It started at like five, five, six, seven. Now gone, all gone. And I look at some of those records and I'm like, oh, man, I should have enjoyed those ones. Those were really interesting. That was like where I was really starting to know how to do something totally unique. Yes. Or whatever. <laughs> um, well, you know what the Bible says? What's that? You know this one? <laughs> <clears throat> something about... Uh, I'm going to lean in for this. Yeah. Something about if you bring forth that which is within you, that which you bring forth will save you. And if you do not bring forth that which is within you, that which you do not bring forth will destroy you. You remember that one? I like that. You were a Catholic boy, weren't you? Indeed, I was. Like Jim Carroll? Yes. Big hero of mine, Jim Carroll. That's from the letter of so-and-so to the other ones or something. Yeah, yeah. I actually learned it from the label of a Silver Jews album. It's a good place to learn scripture, I think. (laughs) Silver Jews. But that's just kind of my whole vibe, you know what I mean? You know, like you were saying, like, you know, we can only give of ourselves, you know, like we only have our own experiences to talk about. And, And like, if you try and, like, uh, disguise these things, then, like, you know, you're just setting yourself up to, you know, perhaps be exposed that way but if you're honest and transparent about your real life experiences then you don't have to uh, carry around a bunch of secrets right secrets can be quite brutal that feeling of being like having to carry around the fear of exposure is a heavy it's a heavy thing right well that's why I try to you know flip it you know and take the most uncomfortable things about my own life and and uh, you know display them in the most public forum I have available to me yeah, I think that's wise. I, I, there's something that I really like about that quote, which is that it makes it it makes the choice compulsory. I have to do this, or else I'm going to be destroyed. And there's like something about doubt, when especially when it comes to shame and all these other you know the inner demons and the things that you have to like. I oh should I should I say this? Should I not say this? It's the doubt of whether or whether or not you know should I expose? Should I not? That struggle for me is a, where a lot of the pain really comes in. And if I'm compelled that I must do it or I will be destroyed, even in theory, even as like a, a philosophical phrase. Right. It makes it much more clear to me. You're not life. actually going to like spontaneously self-immolate or anything <laughs> right. like that, but. but the idea in of itself is like, well, I got to do it. I have no choice. And that I find, those kinds of directions I find very, very comforting. Like if there's like a, this is the way you do it, especially when it comes to art, which yes. as Alan Watts would say, is very wiggly. It's all very wiggly and hard to understand. There's no, like, defining it. So we need to lay down our grids on top of it so that we can say, oh, this is what it is. That's really helpful for me. I, I need, like, a little bit of clarity and compulsory uh, type stuff, you know? We all need a little bit of clarity, but uh, did you need a little bit of Claritin? <laughs> I know you, uh, we were worried now, you might 24 be... hours of... <laughs> we were worried that you might be sneezing a little bit off my cats. Yeah. How about the cats? Are they, uh... Are they good for your mental health? Absolutely. Well, you know, like we were saying, you know, surrendering yourself to something bigger, they're much smaller than me uh, physically. But, um, you know, caring for them is my job. Even on days when I don't much want to get out of bed in the morning, I got to get out of bed to feed them. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? So I can't like completely uh, just melt into a pile of mush. I got to keep going for them. Sometimes and, and, that's enough, right? Sometimes that'll yeah, actually know, on, get you on out. a lot of days, many days. And you know, besides that, you know, they bring a whole lot of joy into my life. I love them so much. Just looking at them, listening to them talk, their funny little language. I'm observing, you know, watching as their palette of beautiful colors dances across the floor. And also, like, you know, observing them and the way that they live. You know, like on that uh, rock opera album that we were talking about. Uh-huh. The Most Lamentable Tragedy, still available on Gorgeous Triple LP from the good people at Merge Records. You really got to get it on vinyl to hear it the right way. Absolutely. Um, that record concludes with a song about animals uh, and the way that, you know, they seem to exist and, you know, just live moment to moment. You know what I mean? They don't necessarily have, like, a lot of grand plans. They don't spend a lot of time, you know, uh, sorrowing the past or dreading the future. They really know how to, like, be here now. You know what I mean? And I think about that, and I think about how, in my own life, you know, it's been helpful for me um, to, when I'm having one of my bad days, to just remember, like, okay, I'm in a moment right now that is maybe really painful, but I'm going to try and recognize that this moment is like any other moment in life, in that, you know, it is temporary and transient, you know what I mean? And that... Just like the rest of them, you know, this moment is going to be followed by another moment, all, you know, succession of moments, which is our lives. Because, you know, when you're feeling really bad, that can, you know, those bad feelings can be compounded with the dread of, like, this is the way that I feel, like, from now on. Like, when I had my first major depressive episode, I was like, okay, well, like, this is what it is now, you know, this is, like, my new life. And, like, that was, you know, as horrible or more horrible a feeling than, you know, what I was experiencing in that moment. Right. That dread and that feeling of, like, you know... Inescapable. Yeah, exactly. How um, long did that last, that first one? Well, let's see. Went into it in, like, my... I guess that was, like, about a good 13 months. So that's easy to see why that would feel totally yeah, inescapable. Yeah. That that's just... Life now, that's who you are from now on, right? That's right. why you're stuck in the jail yes. of being. And you. it didn't take me until uh, month number 12 to start feeling that way either. It's closer to like hour number 12, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that was pretty rough. And it I hadn't really, really like thought about these kinds of things before. That was like kind of when I first, you know, first got into the game. But uh, after coming out of that and then, you know, going through, you know, that cycle again a couple other times. It gave me a certain perspective. It sounds corny, you know, but, like, there is, you know, there's another day coming. You know what I mean? And think, like, as corny or not as it may be, it's the only a day that isn't as bad as that one. It's, like, that's the only a, thing to look a, forward that's to. That's a victory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a huge victory. And then right. having moments that aren't terrible is sort of, like... That's life, you know? You get some really That's you your, some That's stuff. your reward for yeah. staying alive, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you recognize this, I've found, for me anyway, that that, you know, makes the difficult times easier to endure. Uh-huh. And it gives me, you know, a greater appreciation for the good times and how precious yeah. that they are. Yeah, sometimes I, like, am able to actually stop myself now and sort of think, like, wow, I'm really lucky to have life and to know some really amazing people and, like... Let me just stop for a second and think about that because right. that's and feel gratitude. Yeah, gratitude is the parent of all virtues. Gratitude's the some one. saint said that or something. Augustine or one of them. I get it. 
You know, every time I, I meditate, not to, not to pile on the God yeah. stuff or anything. To I'm not even like I'm not even, I'm not even like a God guy, but like these, you know, these uh, whoever wrote that Bible, not God, some right. dude, some collection they, they of knew, questionable dudes over the knew, ages. They knew a few things. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a great thing that, I've, and somebody said this to me on another episode of this podcast, but I, I really loved it. Um, that Joseph Campbell said. That the labyrinth is thoroughly known. I find that really interesting. You know, like, life has been mapped. Like, mm. most stuff that you need to know, somebody's talked about it. Yes. Giving you, like, a hint about some way you might be able to deal with it. Um, right. That is a, uh, that can be a tough thing to wrap your head around. Yeah. Because, like, when you're really in the throes of, like, some kind of extreme emotion, uh-huh. <clears throat> it's easy to think, like, no one has ever felt this way before. Yeah. But, of course, someone has. Which also, goes right, which goes right back to our, you know, whole validation and representation yeah. and rock and roll uh, theme that we're developing here. Oh yeah, just hearing somebody go through what you've been through is enough to make you feel like maybe there is a future. Like they're still going, maybe I'll still go. I don't know. You know, like how did yes. you get through that first one before you knew it wasn't permanent? Like when you thought, like, oh, this is just life now. Like, what made you not? What, what got you through, I guess, really is the simplest way to say it. Definitely not the crazy drugs that they tried to put me on. Yeah, really. Not that I'm against uh, all of the drugs, you know what right. I mean? I take my medication like a good boy like I'm supposed to. Um, but it was like, it was quite the uh, quite the whirlwind adventure to get onto a comfortable plateau with that stuff. Yeah. And they, you know, tried to, you know, well, I'm not going to, I don't need to point point the finger at any uh, any doctor or authority figure any more thoroughly than I did on that great rock opera we were just talking about. Yeah. But, um, you know, if I had to... I also to think on Blan- I Blame Society off the new record, the new Brilliant, and I'll list, there's, there's some, like, uh, discussion of that. Uh, it seems maybe slightly tongue-in-cheek at times. Oh, uh, what, because the narrator makes a point of telling you several times that he's not sick? Yeah. Right, well, that was supposed to be, you know, that was the clearest way that I could show the audience, like, nah, this dude's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I don't have the, I didn't have the lyrics right. when I was listening, so I was doing my best to follow the story, but, um, well, but yeah. I appreciate that. I hope everybody will listen as attentively as you are. But to and to circle back around yeah, to your question, we can praise my, my brilliant records more later. But um, <laughs> if I had to attribute, you know, my survival at that time to any one particular thing, it would be... Uh, the work that I had to do at that time because you know it was you know not ad- it was in a lot of ways it was not advantageous because you know um, as will so often happen you know this first really severe major depressive episode for me came after you know what was at that point my most severe manic episode mm-hmm. you know because that's kind of the way that it goes you know these big old uh, big old peaks and valleys and you know flying yeah. high only to you know crash back down to the earth in like a catastrophic cataclysmic sort of a way so you know as it goes during my manic episodes you know I laid out like quite a grand plan for myself this was when we were preparing to make our third album Local Business and you know so we were supposed to start making that record in like maybe April of 2012 and I went into my uh, major depressive episode in like the middle of March that year wow. so obviously like my first instinct was like holy shit like I can't even get out of bed like I'm supposed to like go make a record right now like I just can't 
I just can't do it. You know, I want to blow the whole thing off. And as a matter of fact, like, I want to kind of bag my whole career. Yeah. And, like, I'm going to just exist in this, like, mushy state from yeah. now on. But, you know, I guess some kind of little voice inside or something said, like, nah, you better not do that. Like, you better go ahead and do all the stuff that, you know, you said you were going to, even if it doesn't sound like such a fun idea right now. That is the thing to do. And um, Were the songs written? Yeah, they were, thank God for that. (laughs) Jeepers, creepers, if I had to, like, start from scratch at that point, we would have been in real trouble. And, you know, I had a, you know, very good uh, team of musicians with me at that time and uh, a very uh, supportive producer and everything and then you know after the record was done you know we had to go out on like a big national tour and the whole bit sometimes I you know I wonder like what would have happened if none of that stuff was on the calendar you know maybe I never would have gone out of bed but you know I do find that a lot of the time you know um, having something uh, constructive to do and having work that needs to get done, having a certain kind of service that you need to perform can be a uh, can be a very positive thing. Which is not to say that, you know, people who, you know, need help uh, shouldn't pursue it and, you know, it's perfectly okay to, you know, blow off certain things if, you know, you're not, like, in a position to do them. You know, that probably would have been a just as valid a choice on my part, but uh, for me personally, and of course I can only speak for myself, I am uh, grateful that I had uh, some work that I had to get done. And even if it wasn't my finest work and we, you know, tanked at a whole bunch of those shows because I was, like, half asleep up there, still got out there and, and did, did the work. Just yeah. do the work, Maria Bamford says. Bamford? You can fact-check me on that and then auto-tune this or something. I think that's a, that's a really important thing for most artists, and I think a lot of the time when I have, like, family friends and stuff that are like, how do you... You know, how do I get into this thing? How do I how do I work on? It? How do I get into this field that I want to work in? And it's like, just, just work. Do all the work that you possibly can. Work as hard as you can. Like, don't stop working. You know what I mean? It's just the only thing that I've ever known is to just not stop working and just keep on, just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And eventually, maybe you'll get good at. It. I mean, when we started, you know, everybody, my nickname was Tone Jeff. Everybody just called me Tone Jeff because I couldn't hit a note if I tried. Right. You know? Right. And then now, like, that's a big reason why I don't sit around listening to our first three records either. <laughs> <laughs> and like now, like every so often, somebody will be like, "Hey, Tone Jeff, right?" I'll be like, "I can sing like a motherfucker now. You better not be talking to me. I took vocal lessons for years. I can, I know what notes I'm hitting, when I'm hitting them. Like, you know, like maybe not that far, but like, yeah, I worked. I worked hard to be where that I was. You know what I mean? And, yes. And really. Uh, Almost had no hope of getting there. I was like, well, my thing is that I can't sing. And so I accepted that about myself at some point. But I just kept working anyway because I knew it was the only thing that made sense to me. And that right, they, really wouldn't, they wouldn't even let me take choir class back in school days. <laughs> but boy, mean. I sure showed them I'm the most famous singer from my town. <laughs> <laughs> Except, of course, for uh, my buddy Eric Morris, who went on to play the male lead in Mamma Mia on Broadway. Oh, that guy, he can, yeah. he can really sing. And my other buddy, Mike Torpy, who, um, he was the, uh, you remember, um, when they had the Chase Freedom card commercial, and it was, like, the black and white guy, and he sang the Footloose parody in one of them? He would maybe be the second, uh, second most famous. Well, I'm the third most famous famous singer from your town. But, yeah, you know, as far as, like, this, you know, being constructive and having stuff to do, uh, question, even though, yeah, I guess you didn't really ask me, but... I'm offering it 
that became like you know maybe you know one of the maybe the biggest part of like my uh, my career strategy as far as it intersects with my own uh, internal well being, which is that you know like I I like to have something on the calendar because like it's not going to let me you know go too far into the abyss. Mm-hmm. You know, and like particularly like that rock opera album that we were just talking about a minute ago. You know, I conceptualized that like right after I had come out of my major depressive episode. And obviously, you know, because it was a triple LP rock opera, you know, you can probably guess that I was quite the maniac when I was conceiving it. But I had enough uh, self awareness to say like, okay, this you learn you is. learn something from last time. Like this isn't gonna last forever. Like you're full of beans right now, but you're gonna you're gonna hit that wall. Hopefully, a little bit more softly than last time. But like you're not always gonna be as full of beans as you are. So I said I'm going to like create this project for myself and give me this hill that I'm gonna have to climb. And it's a big enough thing that I'm not gonna be able to finish it in one episode. You know, so I know the day's going to come when I'm not going to be so full of beans and I am going to hit the wall and I'm going to have to keep going anyway. And that's why, you know, I made the plan and that's why I told everybody in the world about it even before our record company said that it was okay for us to do it. Because I knew that, like, you know... And which plan was that? Uh, to make a triple uh, LP rock opera about an esoteric and uncomfortable subject. All right. And thank God that I did that. So you weren't finished with it when you came down off the the high of, of no way I was like thirty percent there. So how how did you manage to get through and finish the record? Was it because you had people looking out for you, needing more help with it later on, or did you plan it so that you'd do the more downcast songs that were the result later on? You know what I mean? Like I, I'm trying to see if there was any way that you sort of worked that into the plan for the record or. Well, I guess part of it was, like, an attempt to uh, demonstrate to myself that, like, you know, my creativity and my manic episodes were not necessarily synonymous. That's so you know good. That's saying? amazing, that, yeah. yeah. Which was, you know, that's a tough thing for me to wrap my head around, and there are days when I still don't believe it, but... There's moments when you're, like, really inspired, and, like, particularly during that era and that episode when I was conceptualizing it... Where I was like Holy shit Like you know I picked up the guitar Eight hours ago And like now I got Three songs Like how great is oh this Oh my god That's amazing uh, yeah. But uh, I recognized That like that couldn't Be the entire thing Like there was gonna Have to come a time When I would have to Like work And it wouldn't Always be fun Cause life is not Always fun mm-hmm. It's that old thing About you know 10% inspiration 90% perspiration Right and maybe I didn't really believe that at the time, and maybe I don't 100% believe it now. But I, you know, try to create these systems for myself when I will have to practice it anyway. Yeah. I definitely am a... When I don't believe the 90-10, it's because I feel like 10 is more is more generous. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, I think it's like 95% perspiration, yeah. like... And the thing that's good is that if you're always working, the thing that I found is if you're always working, if you show up every day to work and you work consistently and you build yourself like a structure for your ideas, you'll be around when the inspiration comes. You know what I mean? You'll be there. You'll already be at work when like something good happens and it kicks up and then you can just stick that in in the next, yes, you yes. know, and then. And another reason that, you know, I, I've tried to, you know, make these plans and like lay out these strategies for myself 
is saying, I try to say to myself, like, you know, there's, you know, even at times when, like, you're feeling really bad and the world looks very gray and bleak, there is, like, a part of myself inside that is still alive that, you know, still, you know, burns for these kind of things, you know, and this person is going to wake up someday, and when he does wake up, if you, sad, gray world guy, haven't, you know, kept up your end of the bargain, like, he's going to be pretty pissed. Yeah, yeah. So I try to, like, honor that part of myself that believes that the world can be an exciting and vibrant place, even if that particular guy has gotten me into a whole, whole lot of trouble over the course of my life. He's still a, uh, he's still an important guy. Yeah. I try to value his, uh, his lust for life. Yeah. Even if I don't always agree. Well, there's a certain, uh, and I've always wondered if this was sort of like a bridge between those two states, but there's like a certain almost like righteous fire through the, the Titus, uh, discography that's sort of like kind of, a kind of burn it down sensibility towards like the fakeness or the, you know, the greed of the world, uh. And I've always wondered if that was the thing that could, like, unite those two. Is like, you can always have this sort of, like, quest for, like... I don't know, there's, I can't even really... I'm not having a, a good time articulating it, but there's something that shines through in the music, and even in, like, you know, when I follow you on Twitter or whatever, like, there's usually this, this sense of, like, must be done that kind of, like, shines through. I don't know. Um, it must be done. must be done. If you don't do, you die, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've always appreciated that. And I think there's, like, I'll butcher the quote, but there's a thing in Dimed Out about, you know, your uh, challengers. My challengers are talentless imbeciles. That's right. When my chalice is full, I am invincible. <laughs> right. I, that's always been, like, it's, a it's major fun. defining, band-defining line for me, right. like, where I'm like, I love this. It's fun to feel that way. <laughs> Do you ever read that when you're on a low and think, yes, I have to remember this? Or is it more like, oh, I'm not Well, that, that I mean, that is part of it. You know, I do, like, you know, as much as I, you know, speak to my audience through my lyrics, like, it's every bit as much of me speaking to myself. Oh, yeah. You know, and, like, these are, like, little reminders that I put for myself that I've sprinkled throughout this catalog and feelings from certain moments that I'm not always going to have access to. Yeah. But because, you know, they're on the record... Uh, they're on the record. They're yeah. you know they're documented, and I know that they are valid and were real at one time, and may yet be real again. I love that. That's beautiful. I think even despite all the, the just total incompetence on my part, I think I have a good amount that I can use. You're great, man. <laughs> I had so much fun talking to you. That's the that's the redeeming thing. So. Uh, and you know it's sure it's it's good, it's good in a way because that stuff that wasn't on the tape that's just for us now. You know what I'm saying? And you know it's good to have a, the performative element of these uh, kind of discussions. But I took a I took a lot away from our discussion earlier, and I'm grateful for that, and uh, grateful for the rapport that we developed at that time. And hopefully, all you dark blue listeners out there have enjoyed this too. Yeah. We'll see you same time next week. Don't forget to go to stamps.com because I'm sick of going to the post office. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had some ads to throw in there. Um, I'm going to turn it off now. Patrick isn't the only musician who's open about his struggles with bipolar. 
but his unique mixture of insight and dedication, self-awareness and generosity has made me think differently about my own struggles. In the time since our interview, I've been thinking about the quote, if you bring forth that which is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Patrick has brought forth so much from inside himself. His latest record with Titus Andronicus and Obelisk is out now. I'm Jeffrey Rickley. This is Dark Blue. Until next time. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com.